Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Boston Sanctuary since 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the Boston metropolitan area and beyond. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. We're located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets in downtown Boston, Massachusetts. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. Rabbi Harold S. Kushner's wonderful new book is improbably titled Conquering Fear. Fear is in our hardwiring. At best, it serves a grand purpose keeping us out of harm's way. Our fear may well be one of our best friends. At its worst, though, fear is utterly debilitating. You know that fear. We all know it. Writing for the Jerusalem Post in a place where people know something about fear, columnist Collins writes, Perhaps, deep down, my greatest fear is that if I were to live in fear, I would never get anything done. You don't paint an apartment if you constantly worry about the imminence of earthquakes. You don't stay close to friends if you worry that they are about to be wiped out by war or disease. If you acted on all the fears concerning children, you'd have to spend so much energy trying to protect them, you wouldn't have time to raise them. What to do with that fear? Fear of things that are real, imagined, or exaggerated. That anticipatory catastrophizing that does no one any good at all and only wears us out and does us in. Three strategies. The first strategy is to ignore our fear or pretend it doesn't exist. If that works for you in any kind of sustained way, let's talk. (laughs) My own experience is that I can cut the deal with myself not to worry about something, and it will sneak up on me while I'm sleeping and wake me up. In my case, I'm loath to say it's never something as grand as nuclear holocaust or the melting of the polar ice cap. It's always something equally out of my control, but far more pedestrian. I won't bore you with the laundry list. I do know, though, that it helps to practice containment with the kind of fear about which we can do precisely nothing. Containment is the psychological discipline of making time, but just a contained period of time that you choose, such as, say, seven minutes in the morning and bringing on the madness. I kid you not, you get to freak out for seven minutes and then it all goes back into the freak out file in our minds and the drawer slams closed until the next morning when you can pull it out again, but not before. And the other 23 hours and 53 minutes of the day? Denial. (laughs) The second strategy to address our fear is to invoke some magic about it. This is one of my favorites. My late friend and colleague Peter Fleck used to tell the story of his daughter's childhood fear of flying and her resolution to watch the wing of the plane near which she was seated, imagining that somehow if she concentrated on that wing staying attached to the fuselage, all would be well. Apparently, 
The gentleman seated next to her copped to what she was doing when lunch was served, and he very kindly said to her, with not a trace of irony in his voice, I'll keep my eye on the wing for a while if you'd like to take a break and eat. <laughs> I always laugh at that story because I recognize myself in it. It's the unwillingness to accept our own powerlessness, choosing instead to play let's make a deal with the unseen forces of the universe. The third strategy to cope with our fear, and this one is interesting, is to choose to hang around especially brave people, or at least people who are doing a good job with the first two strategies of denial or magical thinking. Dr. Mark Siegel, author of False Alarm, The Truth About the Epidemic of Fear, writes, our infectious fears spread faster than any bacteria and ignite a sense of imminent danger that far eclipses the reality. Anthrax, for example, is not contagious. Fear of anthrax is. Actually, this is very serious. Rabbi Kushner cites an article in the science section of the New York Times in which it is reported that worrying about terrorism could be taking a toll on the hearts of millions of Americans. As it turns out, about 6% of the population was really terrorized by the 9-11 attacks. They couldn't put it in perspective and continued to be acutely fearful. The stress caused them to be at least three times more likely to develop new heart problems. Doing the math, we're talking about 10 million people living in extreme fear. If even a tiny fraction of 1% of those 10 million were to suffer a fatal heart attack due to that fear, it would mean that more people died of fear after 9-11 than died on 9-11 itself. Dr. Gregory Burns, writing for the New York Times, says, we are caught in a spiral in which we are so scared that fear overtakes our brains. It makes it impossible to concentrate on anything but saving our skin. Just when we most need new ideas, everyone is seized up in fear. So the first order of business is to neutralize that system. This means not being a fear monger, avoiding people who are overly pessimistic, and tuning out media that fan emotional flames. In 1933, in his first inaugural address, President Franklin D. Roosevelt spoke to a country mired in the Great Depression. You'll recognize the most famous quotation from his opening paragraph, but the surround of that quote is also interesting. Here's an excerpt from what he said. This is preeminently the time to speak the truth, the whole truth, frankly and boldly. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror that paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. Of the three main strategies for working with our fear, denial, magical thinking, or shutting it off at the source, President Roosevelt advocated the third. Let's get real 
with what's real and shut down disabling fear. Obviously, he was on to something. Let's go deeper. Last week, we had so much fun with a mere sentence fragment from Revelation that today I wanted to share with you four whole sentences from the first book of Kings. This will be something like watching the previews. We're dropping into chapter 19. The prophet Elijah has fed to the wilderness, fled to the wilderness, returning to Mount Sinai, where God had originally sealed the covenant with Israel. And then, a great strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rock. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. In other words, what is holy is not in the tornado, the earthquake, the fire, the flood, or anything else on that long list of what frightens us. Whatever we can know of the divine is in the still, small voice of whoever or whatever it is that helps and heals and holds us. In other words, God is not a terrorist. And if you're ever tempted to fear what is divine, I implore you to consider the deeply inherent contradiction in that misconception. It's actually interesting to read the Bible from this perspective, sort of. Well, just this. God spends a lot of time telling people not to be afraid. God says it to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses. God repeats it four times when addressing Joshua for the first time, lest Joshua be overwhelmed by the task of succeeding Moses. God tells each of the prophets not to be afraid of the demands of their work and commands them to tell the people not to be afraid as well. You can keep on tearing through the Bible, and there's this example then that we all know so well. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. Fear not echoes right on through the Bible more than 80 times. Fear not. So what's the alternative? Dr. Sigmund Freud said, in essence, that if we want to know who a person is, ask what he fears. Augustine of Hippo, a 5th century North African bishop, said, if you wish to know who a person is, ask what she loves. Preceding both these statements is 1 John chapter 4, verse 16, perfect love casts out fear. Here comes the spiritual solution to fear. You knew it would be love, didn't you? <laughs> 
For years, I have considered this statement. Fear and love cannot coexist. True? False? Defend. My up-to-the-minute conclusion, and revelation is not sealed, so today, my conclusion is true. In any given moment, fear and love cannot coexist, moment by moment. It's either fear or love. But they're definitely joined in some kind of epic battle, aren't they? Margaret Miles, one of my favorite professors, now emerita at Harvard Divinity School, writes, a culture of fear can paralyze our ability to address systematically the evils of poverty, desperation, and violent aggression in our homes, on our streets, and across the globe, convincing many of us that all efforts are doomed to failure. But passivity, a helpless victim mentality, and aggression resulting from fear can be challenged by a committed practice of social and political engagement. That practice is a spiritual practice, the practice of love. Fear can disable love, and love can cast out fear. What's winning right now? How can we cast out fear and stand on the side of love? Let's return to the work of Augustine. Halfway around the world some 1,600 years ago, he insisted that love is not so much an emotion as an activity. Love, he said, has hands to help others. Love has feet to hasten to the poor and needy. Love has eyes to see misery and want. Love has ears to hear sighs and sorrows. In case he hadn't made himself perfectly clear, reverberations of this conviction run through Bishop Augustine's sermons. Give then to the poor, he said, I beg, I advise, I admonish, I charge you. Or in my favorite translation of this sainted man, so give to the poor. I'm begging you, I'm warning you, I'm commanding you, I'm ordering you to give. In other words, I'm ordering you to love. Love is something we do, something we make. To love is the spiritual practice of casting out fear. My spiritual companions, denial, magical thinking, or shutting it off at its source are all worthy strategies for working with fear. And then there's something above and beyond those ways of being. When we listen to that still, small voice, what does it say? It invites us to choose love over fear. It invites us to the possibility of making of love a transformative spiritual practice. Let's close with those beautiful lines from
from poet Mary Oliver. Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Amen. <laughs>